begin reading at verse 19 and conclude at verse 25. Word of the Lord. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. That which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates God with us. Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. When she has bared a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And just as it is spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall be the child. She will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. What is in his name? What is in his name? I've been trying to convey in the past several weeks that there is meaning and motivation and a message tied in the names that relate to God in the text. In an attempt to define and describe how divinely God exists among human beings, we sought to use language as the text conveys that would help us understand what do we mean when we say the name God. Elohim, we've explored God as creator and the strong one in Genesis chapter 1. Jehovah Yahweh, the self-existing one, the I am, as conveyed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Now we have traveled to the New Testament, and the idea of a name still carries a significant meaning because the name also depicts the desire in the text of a parent who believed for their child's achievement. This is a strange consideration because Joseph nor Mary is given the option to name their child. Although the child is not Joseph by biology, yet Joseph is visited by the angel to let him know, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife 
for that which is in her womb was not conceived by human flesh, but a divine intervention, the Holy Spirit, in a miraculous manner, impregnated her with the Savior of the world. And don't worry about a name, we already chose the name. His name shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And just so we would be understanding that it is not just a New Testament advancing of the name, they borrowed that from the words of Isaiah in which the prophet spoke, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is not the first time God has imposed names on folk that he is desiring to use for his glory. You recall in the Old Testament, Abram, whose name means exalted one or exalted father, his name is changed to Abraham, which means the father of a great nation. His wife, Sarah, which means my princess, is changed to Sarah, which means the princess of the world. Jacob, whose name means trickster, deceiver, is changed to Israel, which means he shall fight and persist when meeting God. And then Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, and each of his sons' names have a significant meaning when we talk about their participation in the plan of God. Reuben, whose name means, I have a son born out of affliction. Simeon, whose name means, I have a son because God heard my prayer. Levi, whose name means, I have a son because God has attached him to me. Judah means that I will praise God at all times. Dane means that I am God who serves and gives justice as Rachel, who was barren, finally got justice by God's hand who made her no longer barren but fertile for Jacob. Nephtali, which means wrestler and I will prevail when I keep wrestling. Or Gad, which means, here's a good one, there is good luck and fortune in me. That's for somebody who say you've never heard the word good luck in the Bible. The word Asher, which means I'm happy because I'm happy that God granted me a prayer request. Zubilan, which means I'm dwelling or that God is dwelling with me because he gave me a gift in the birth of a son. Issachar means that God has rewarded me as a wage for the labor I've given in giving birth to this son. And Benjamin, Benjamin means the son of my sorrow because Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin. And then Joseph, Joseph's name means God will add. And if you think about how Joseph is used in the economy of Egypt, Joseph never subtracted, but Joseph gave, added unto the economy of Pharaoh. 
But then Jesus serves in the same role when he comes among us in his ministry and changes the name of servants likewise who worked in his economy. So the name Simon is changed to Simon Peter the Rock. Saul, whose name means ask for prayer, is changed to Paul, who means small and humble. What am I trying to say? I'm saying that there are many names that are given in the text, and yet God, who is the orchestrator of all of humanity, has the power and the authority to change a name because in accomplishing his objective, he wants the name to fit the mission. And so many in the text have name shifts, but again, no one experiences what Mary experiences, the inability to name her own son. His name shall be called Jesus, says verse 21. The Greek derivative of the Hebrew word Yahshuah, English translation Joshua, which means Jehovah, the Savior, or salvation of Jehovah. Joshua was the one who led Israel finally to their rest after the death of Moses. And yet it seems that Jesus is now going to be the very leader who will lead not just Israel but all of humanity to their rest once they are finally laid to rest in the human realm. Jesus bought salvation to a troubled people. Joshua brought salvation to a troubled Israel who needed direction after the death of Moses. He leads them into the land of promise and although they still fail to recognize who were leading them, yet God still brought them salvation. How many of us this morning can testify that I did not even know that God was leading me when God was and yet because he brings salvation to my house, I'm happy this morning and can testify that I serve a savior who may not always be identified in his movement, but yet I realize God brings salvation to those who stand in need of deliverance. He says, says the text, verse 21, he is salvation to a people because he saves them or he will save them from their sin. Jehovah saves. In other words, Jesus becomes the mission of the Christmas season to save. Watch the translation. It's not just to give in terms of the giving of a gift, but we are going to rescue, to save, to move people from something, a condition, to another something, a new condition. When bringing salvation to someone's house, the objective is to change the demeanor to which they are depicting. 
So you remember when you are giving gifts to your children, they may wake up one way on Sunday, on Christmas morning, but once they get that gift to which you have given them, their whole demeanor changes because now you have moved them from one condition to another condition. Here's what God did. In Christ, we were in a sad condition of being eternally separated from God. So in Jesus, he comes to bring a new condition and that new condition is not just the change of my demeanor, but he's changed the way that I walk and he's changed the way that I talk and he's changed the way that I believe and he's changed the way that I'm convinced. And now I know that I've got the greatest gift that can be given and that is the gift of eternal life. Jesus came to save me from my condition of sin. You got to take a rewind in your life to get the logist of this. He saves me from my sin. The mission of God's Christmas, Christ in the masses of the people, was to come and to save them from their sinful condition. The condition of a drug addict and the condition of an alcoholic and the condition of someone who runs a different manner and the condition that's debacle, God came to deliver us from that condition. I can't hear y'all, so here's what I'm going to say. If you think about what he delivered you from in the condition that he found you, some of us got testimonies that sound a little sweeter than others, but those of us who got those bad testimonies where he found us in the gutters of life, he found us in the spaces where we were too mean even to die, but yet he found us and rescued us, we understand the real meaning of Christmas because the mission of the son was to rescue me from dying in one condition and then redirect me that I might be saved in another condition. So now that I know that even if I die tonight, it's all good because I have yet to see all that the Christmas God has in store for me. That's, that's the mission of Christmas. You shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. But then there's a message in Christmas. And the message is found in verse 23. As the prophet has spoken, God moved that what the prophet spoke would be fulfilled. The virgin shall be with child and she will bring forth a son but this time, says the prophet, you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God took and translated two Hebrew words and put them together and said, God is going to be with you. God himself, clothed in human flesh, he came. That's shouting news. Now, God didn't just send a son. God sent himself in the form of his son. God could have sent another prophet, but God decided after 40 and two generations, 
let me walk out of glory and get down into the earthly realm where the dirt is. Let me get on their level so they can recognize I'm not a God who just sits on my throne and point my fingers, but I'm willing to come down and be with them where they are. Isn't that a good friend? Don't just tell me on the phone that I'm with you, but when I'm in a crisis, I want you to show up at the crisis and I want you to hold my hand and to whisper in my ear and to push me on. I want you to ride or die with me. Don't just talk you're going to be with me, but show up. And God says, I did enough talking in the Old Testament. Let me now show up so they can see who I am. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. But what does that mean? Because I really think that when we talk about God being with us, God shifts gears on us. And God says, let me take this to a new level. Because when we say Emmanuel, God with us, he came in the flesh to be with us in his presence and to give us what we never deserved, mercy. He gives us and came to give the gift that we could never deserve, not just mercy, but grace. He not only came to give us what we never deserve, but he also came not to give us what we do deserve, judgment. He showed up that he might administer not the judging hand of God, but the merciful hand of God. And to show how merciful he was, he came and lived among us. Ain't nothing like a leader who lived right where the crisis is in the midst of where the trouble resides. And Jesus didn't live on the hill in Rome, didn't live down in the valley in Jerusalem, but he lived right there among the people. In fact, Jesus would later say, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man don't have a single place to lay his head. In other words, I don't have an address attached to my name at all. If you come to meet me, you got to come and find me right where I am. But hold up, I save you the trouble. I will come right where you are. That's why I'm called Emmanuel, God with us. So here's what God did. In Bethlehem, we see God is with us, his presence. This is important because it reminds us of him not just being there with presence, but what he brings with his presence, peace. Remember in the Luke account that when the angels showed up, they start talking about how the sun will bring peace on earth. And when the sun comes, he didn't bring immediate peace that would alleviate war, but he brought peace in the hearts of those who would receive him. It's almost as if when I read this text and I think about God being with us in his presence, I'm driven to the lyrics of an old hymn. I've seen the lightning flashing and I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin breakers dashing, which were trying to conquer 
my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus who bid me to still fight on. Here it is. Because he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. No, never alone. No, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. His presence assures me that he's always with us and by he being always with us here's a good analogy I know he's there because when something happens and I I, I seem to want to shift my mind back to the day from the hood he shifts it up to the glory in heaven and makes sure I don't get out of character of who I am his presence among and with us reminds us how God, here's a shouting point, you ought to shout about it, there were times when you would say or do such and so, but because God was present with you, you knew it was God who controlled your tongue. You knew it was God who kept you calm. You knew it was God who gave you some peace. You almost lost your mind. In fact, you was about to be sentenced to death by way of murder. But God in his grace and God in his mercy and God in his provision calmed you down. You ever had somebody to take you up there and to take you up there and to take you up there and all you do is cry out, Lord, have mercy on me and that presence bring you back down to a space where you know God is with you. That's what he did when he came to Bethlehem. But watch this. We see that in Bethlehem, he's with us with his presence. But if I fast forward to Calvary, we see God is not just with us, but God is for us at Calvary. He's not just the presence, here's a big word, here's a big word, but he has now become my propitiation. That's a big word, let me break it down for you. Propitiation just simply means this, God in his provision of being with us, decided that when it came time to experience his own judgment, put his own self on the cross as the substitutionary provision that you and I don't have to get on a cross to die for our sins, wouldn't have done any good anyway, but it took a sinless lamb who could actually fill in the gap for us, and that's the big word, it's a Latin word, so God became the propitiator or the propitiation. He filled in the gap that he might appease his own judgment. Now that's, that's shouting news right there by itself. We should not just be relegated to shouting because God gave us a car and God gave us a house and God gave us clothes and God gave us a job and God gave us air. All that's great. But we should really be shouting because God stood in the gap through Jesus and died for our sin, became the substitutionary person who took the blunt of my sin and took the blunt of God's judgment that I don't have to stand in return. First John 2 and 2 says that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. First John 4 and 10 says that God loved us so that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. And since Jesus became the propitiation, he did that, that we might experience, here's another big word, reconciliation 
in order to claim salvation that God has for us. I know I said a lot, so let me break that down for you again. So Jesus stood in the gap because of what sin did, which broke us apart, and Jesus standing in the gap at the perpetuation in the dying of the, on the cross created reconciliation, brought man back unto God, opened a highway from earth to glory, and then as a result of dying, being buried, and then resurrected, created salvation. If you think about it, if he had died on the cross and that had been the end of the story, there still couldn't be salvation because that meant that God died in human flesh, but that's what he did. He died and he's left there in a grave. But thanks be unto God, early on Sunday morning, salvation made his entry because he got up. And that's what it means when Emmanuel, God with us, comes to our life on Christmas Day. We're going to get up and we ought to get up with great joy. Lord, I thank you. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it because salvation has come to my house. See, you don't understand the essence of salvation until you've been lost or until you recognize you are dying. So you will never really get the logist of God being the salvation by way of healer until something has happened to your human body and it is dying, says physicians, and the only thing you can do is have an intercessor who can create reconciliation in the dying of your body and bring it back to the space of salvation. And when you've been sick and you were almost close to death and God raised you up by restoring your body, that's the salvation that God brought to your house. Okay, I didn't get no shouting out here right there, so here's another shouting point. When I see him as God with us, peace in Bethlehem, and then when I get to Calvary, I see God as being for us, propitiator. Then when I get to Pentecost, I see God in us as his divine power. Look what happens. The Holy Spirit is now living on the inside of us, that's what God with us means. Once we move from Christ being in the flesh with us, but the resurrection makes a different change. He's not just with us in the flesh anymore. He's with us now in the spirit. So we are admonished by Paul in five, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the spirit. Galatians 5.16, walk in the spirit. Romans 8 14 be led by the spirit. In other words when you know where the power lies that leads you then you understand that he not only saves me from my sins but he also is with me in the power of his presence. Now that leads me to my final hymn. That leads me to another hymn that I just can't, we don't sing it anymore in church, I guess it's an out outgrew or it just no longer is applicable but here it is it holds all the power of what I'm trying to say when I think about his name what's in his name he saves his people from sins and Emmanuel God be with us it's a hymn 
that's based on good theology that revolves around a series of questions. Here it is. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Here's another question. Would you be free from your passion and pride? Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? Would you do service for Jesus the King? Would you over evil a victory win? Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. Sin stains are lost in the life-giving flow. Would you live daily his praises to sing? Here's what you know. There's power. Power. Wonder-working power. In the blood of the Lamb. That's it right there. That's what our preaching should really be about. Not about how God will make a way in terms of giving you a car and a house, but the power in his blood to save me out of my condition. What good would it do me if I had all, if I had attained all of the materialistic aspirations that I have, had every last one of them and some? In the language of Jesus, what would it profit a man if he gained all that he desired but loses his soul? We've got to make sure we reconnect to understand the glory of this old hymn. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the precious lamb. Do you hear what he asked in those questions? How are you going to be free from the burden of your sin? If there's not a provision that God has made in the person of his son, he shall save his people from their sin. But that's another conversation. We don't talk about sin anymore because it's not only politically incorrect, but it makes people feel uncomfortable. Do you not know that if it hadn't been for that, there would be no purpose for Jesus? He didn't come to save us from anything else, but go back and read verse 21. Go back and read it. It didn't say he came to deliver us from a bad diet or bad relationships or from a bad attitude. Sins. He came to save us from the sin. Why? Because it's the sin that monopolizes the life of the individual and it ends up paying us a wage that's nothing but death. But he came to bring a gift, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. What's in his name? Power. Power to not only forgive us, but power to change us. What's in his name? Propitiation. His name is so glorious and valuable that he put it on the cross and then to give us by way of demonstration of how deep his love is, he on the cross stopped long enough and dined between two thieves to look at one who said to him, I know I'm not worthy. 
I'm not worthy to ask you this question. I deserve to be where I am. But when you enter into your kingdom, will you remember me? L listen to the plea of that thief on the cross. You don't read Luke's account. You don't deserve to be here. But I do. But when you get to your kingdom, can you just remember me? Listen to what he said. Can you just remember who I am? That thief recognized the omniscience of God right there in the flesh. If he thought about it, he asked Jesus, can you just remember my name when you get there? Out of all the names that I know you can remember, can you remember mine? Don't you and I feel that way when we're crying out, Lord, can you just remember me while I'm praying at this moment? But it's a shouting point because right there, God demonstrated, I, I love you so much that I'm not going to let you go to the cross. I'm going to go there for you. I'm going to take all that Pilate, Herod, and the economy of Rome and their injustice have to give. I'm going to take the blunt of it all for you. And if that's not enough, his presence. God with us. And I thank him for his presence. Because when I encounter moments in which I am overwhelmed by the inconsistencies and the troubling of the moment, I need somebody who can tap me on the shoulder and can tell me in my own lingo, don't trip out on this, don't lose your mind on this. No matter what it is, I've heard God tell me clearly, this too shall pass. And then you can hear him with his presence as he tells us, wait. Wait, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, and be of good courage. He'll strengthen your heart. Do I have any witnesses that you've had to wait on God? You've had to wait on the Lord to give you the strength to persevere, and he gave you the courage that you need. That's because he's Emmanuel, God. Here's my invitation. He's in this house. He come to not just be among us, but to be within us. See, here's the advantage we have in New Testament saints. In the Old Testament, God only showed up and showed himself by, uh, by being an object, the cloud the fire, the rain, in the miraculous way. But in the New Testament, I not only show up, but I'm living on the inside of you. That's the reason why whenever something goes wrong in you, I am working in the midst of your mind. Your conscience is what I work with because I want you to know, I told you, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And the only way I can fulfill that is to live within you. And that's the victory we have this morning. And that invitation is this, come unto me, 
all of you who got heavy burdens in life, all of you who've tried everybody and everything else, come to me. And here's Jesus' promise. I will give you rest. Now, aren't you, aren't you happy? Listen, aren't you happy about this? Here's the operative word in that whole conversation. Give. Have you noticed everything you want to give today? There's a price attached. There's a fee here. There's a fee there. There's a cost here. There's a cost here. Somebody's trying to make a profit there. But Jesus says, I'll give you rest. And once again, you won't know what that word rest means until you've been restless. Because Paul says there's a peace that God gives in the midst of the rest that's surpassive. That means that Paul said if you try to line them up side by side, it won't work because the peace that God gives always outruns the peace you find anywhere else. That's what it means when he said it's surpassive all understanding. You, you can't match it. You can't figure it out. It's too complex. Let me close with this statement. I can tell you how complex it is. How can you commit a sin, know you were wrong, ask God for forgiveness, and experience freedom? How can you know that what you have done deserves the wage which is death? But the peace and freedom that God gives through Christ gives is eternal life. I will give you rest, says Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. A virgin shall bring forth a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. His presence, the propitiation, and his power. That's what we get in Jesus. The gift that keeps on giving. No credit limit on God's giving, because God don't work off of credit. He gives out the abundance of who God is. And then there's really no qualification in the terms of trying to live up to God's expectation to get what God has in return, because we're all disqualified. So that's the reason why grace and mercy, that's why we ought, to, we ought to stand up every morning and quote Lamentations 3, morning by morning, new mercies. Here's the glory of Jesus. In the forgiveness of sin, what you did yesterday is gone. Today is a new day. Could you think about this for a moment? What if God held me accountable for what I did yesterday and here it is today? 
And by the end of the day, I done had another pile of stuff that I done add on to what I did on yesterday. And we're not talking about the full week, nor the full month, nor the full year. We're just talking about one day. That's why we ought to shout for mercy and grace and God being with us. Here's an invitation. He wants you this morning. He wants you so much so that he died to make sure that today would be the day of salvation that comes to your house. You never have to leave the presence of God the same way you came. That's your choice. But God's provision is always building us to be more than what we are. Have you ever read Genesis 1? Do you remember the mandate that God gave Adam? Be fruitful and multiply. Christians should never be unfruitful because God called us to constantly build. Lord, somebody I pray in your name, if there's not in this house, they're in somebody's house across this country, across this world, maybe at this hour of the day, 